Welcome back to part two of the podcast. I'm Jeffrey Madoff here with Dan Sullivan, and we're going to talk about anything and everything. It was very interesting. Uh, for about 10 years, I had a client and he had his own, it was a union negotiation, contract union negotiation consultancy. And he would essentially represent management in their negotiations with unions, okay? It was kind of like having a mediator in the legal case. And the reason was that he was committed to getting a deal for both sides, okay? And to a certain extent, he had to be tough with both sides, you know, in doing this, okay? That he couldn't be the management's guy who's arguing the management's course because the management's guy couldn't get a deal, Okay, so he had to come in, and I said to him, "How, from your experience, how often is money the central issue?" And he said, "Never, never." He said, "Money's never the issue." He said, "Historically, if I put all my negotiations together, money would come out at an average of six most important thing when the process starts." And he said, "A lot of it is." They feel that there's organizational deficiencies where things aren't run well enough and work processes the way they think, and they've got no say in correcting them. They've got no say in, you know, in actually improving things, that they've got ideas of how things could be done better, but there's no vehicle of discussion or anything within the company where our voices can be heard, where we can improve things. And he says, and then... We have a number one, and they won't accept number one. Number six became number five, and it got bigger. And then number two, they won't accept that. So number five moved to number four, and it got bigger. He says, once they've given us no agreement on one through five, and then he says, then money has to represent all six. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, that's great. That's great. Because you're right. That escalates in importance as the other benefits are taken away. Yeah. You know, yeah. we had an interesting illustration of that, which is that before the workshop, when we were rehearsing for the workshop, and I knew that I wasn't happy with the ending I wrote. It wasn't clicking. Something was off, but I didn't know what. Sheldon and I sat down and Chester, who plays Lloyd, and I said, look, here's my concern. The ending that I've written, I don't think it's effective. It's not powerful enough. And one of the things is, is that I want to transition from Lloyd talking to Lloyd singing, which then brings out the company. But, you know, there's a refrain and I kept on singing and I kept on singing, but I didn't have that refrain yet. I was just trying to think of what it was. Well, we had a fascinating discussion that, that took in not only the story structure, but it took in issues of race and it was really deep, but really good. And Chester came up with a really good idea, but he couldn't really articulate it. He said, I think I can do something that works here. I want to work on it with Shelton, the musical director. And Sheldon said, that's great. Why don't you guys work on it? And you can show it to us when you come up with it. And so we talked a little more. And then when we went back to rehearsal, Chester came over to me and hugged me. And he said, a lot of 
playwrights say, we want your opinion, but they don't. (laughs) And he said, I am very grateful for you hearing me out. And I'm going to work on this with Shelton. And we'll be back to you with something. And that really touched me. Mm -hmm. And what happened was when he called Sheldon and I in to listen to what they put together, it was incredible. And it's the ending you saw. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he kept his refrain was, the father, you told me that we're black and that's that. But I kept on singing. And he keeps building on that. And it became so powerful. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't come up with that ending. I then wrote it. But that idea and the emotional impact was the result of that conversation and the contribution of the musical director and our star, Chester. Mm -hmm. And I think that if you're so consumed with pride of authorship, Mm -hmm. no matter what, it doesn't have to be about a play and writing a play. It's about anything. If the ideas have to be yours in order to be any good, as you were just saying, the money starts ascending is what's more and more important. Yeah, I mean, you've got dignity. I mean, at a certain point, the only thing that allows you to walk away with dignity is money. You know, I mean, otherwise you've been totally defeated, you know. Yeah. And uh, Yeah. I think I may have mentioned this before, but we had a lot of people who have kind of an inside view on certain sports teams, and one of them is the New England Patriots. And there was a story written about two years ago about Tom Brady during the last six years before he ended his relationship with New England and moved to Tampa Bay and then promptly won another Super Bowl. But that during the last six years, he had agreed with the Patriots that he would only take 60% of what the market said he was owed. You know, there's a price for the top quarterbacks, and he's the top quarterback, the toppest of all quarterbacks, really, historically. But he only took 60%. And this was never revealed until he was almost leaving. But it was known in football circles among the agents and among the other things that he would deliberately leave 40% on the table for the team. And it was to acquire second-string offensive linemen, the offensive linemen being the people who protect the quarterback. And he said, what I've noticed reading the history of the Super Bowl, that the ones who get to the Super Bowl and win the Super Bowl are the ones who have a great second string offensive lineman because you lose people through injury throughout the season. And it's that strength of the second string. He says, the money I'm leaving on the table is not going to get you first string lineman, but it'll get you three or four really good second string linemen. So then they had a conversation with him and, you know, one of the reporters brought up that the other agents and the quarterbacks in the league were really angry with him because he, to a certain extent, he had devalued their bargaining position with their own clubs by doing this. And so Tom Brady, who's, you know, he's very Zen-like in some ways. And he said, yeah, but he says, you know, all those other quarterbacks who don't like my deal, they tend to watch the Super Bowl on television. <laughs> he said, I don't like watching the Super Bowl on television. He said, I like being in the Super Bowl. And it showed that he had a sense of the whole picture. It wasn't just about him. 
it was about the whole team, but it was about the whole organization. He said, you know, I'm in a position where I can actually create a capability by not taking as much money. I can actually create a winning capability by not taking as much money. So what would you say from what we've been talking about, can you distill this down to as a business owner or a manager, how do you attract and keep, because you have long lifespans of people with strategic coach, how do you attract and keep the best people? You know, it's an interesting discussion and it's changed, of course, over the last two years because Zoom has come so much into the picture of that. You can, in fact, get talent much further afield these days for certain of your work because it doesn't require their physical presence. You can do it with Zoom. And I haven't completely caught up with the changes that have happened because of Zoom. Mm -hmm. But I'll, I will talk about what happened before. Our clients. Primarily, they're not big city entrepreneurs. They live in outskirts of cities. They live in smaller communities. And they come from all 50 states. We're represented from all 50 states. And so they don't have big labor pools. A lot of them are, you know, in places that don't have big labor pools. And they say, well, you know, you talk about attracting great people, but we just don't have great people where I am. And I said, that's one way of looking. I said the other way is that you do have great people where you live, but they're not looking for you. Mm -hmm. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, what's a great person? What would be a great? Well, they're really motivated. They're excited and everything else. You know, they put down a whole thing. You know, they want really interesting work to work on and everything. You know, they do great jobs. And I said, so are you showing up that way that someone would know? that you're someone great to work for, that you're someone who creates great excitement on the projects. And I said, why don't you work on the issue at hand before you start talking what's not or what's available or what's not available? I said, it may be that there's no great entrepreneur available here for great people to work for. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, they take it or leave it, but that's all the fact. So my primary thing is that I've got to First of all, work on myself continually that I have a big forward vision for myself that I'm totally sold on. In other words, I'm not going to buy my own vision depending on whether other people agree with it or not. I'm going to buy my own vision, say, you know, I'm totally committed to this and I'm looking for people who have great skills who might be part of this. And then you've got to keep up in the game. But the thing that you've cracked the code on, I want to bring this up, that you are a great person to work for if you allow someone to actually say, I think I can improve what we're doing here. Would you give me you know, the freedom to actually improve it? And if you say no, you're not a great person to work for. <laughs> right. If you say yes and say, I'd be happy to hear what your solution looks like, that'll be a great contribution if you can do that. And I would tell you, people will take a bullet to work in that kind of situation. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting to me because why would you hire someone whose opinion you're not interested in? Status. You're right. Yeah. No, status. There's three answers. You know, there's three things. Status, status, and status. <laughs> I'm a big deal. 
I can get this person, I can get this person, I can get this person, okay? And then when they fail, you say, well, they were schmucks. Right, right. Yeah. Now I'm looking, sir, for really great people. You know, these people are losers, you know, and everything like that. I mean, you've seen that. I sure have. Always deflect responsibility away from yourself. Yeah. You know, it's always somebody else's fault. Yeah. Somebody else didn't fulfill on the promise. We thought they were good, but, you know, it was all puffery. They weren't as good. I mean, it happens. But the really great ones, I mentioned in a recent email to you about the movie Topsy Turvy, Mm -hmm. you know, about Gilbert and Sullivan and the creation of the Mikado. Right. And the enormous degree to which, well, first of all, the producer and director of the movie has his actors come and live with him for a year and they create the script and then he brings experts in on the times. In this case, he brought the experts from Buckingham Palace to come and talk about, you know, in the 1880s and 1890s, how did people talk to each other? How did they relate to each other? So he starts creating piece by piece the actual piece, but the script is not set to begin with. The script is created out of dialogues and discussions with the cast, but then that was actually reflected in the movie that Gilbert especially really listened to his cast, and Sullivan just mailed in the music. You know, he kind of sent the music by uh, Courier, but Gilbert was really involved in, uh, you know, according to the story that was told in the movie. But I think that the more you make people part of the creative process, the more their commitment grows. I think you're right, uh, because I think people want to feel valued Mm -hmm. and that they want to feel heard. And, you know, I mean, a business relationship on a certain level isn't any different than any other relationship in your life, right? People want to be respected. They want to feel like they're heard, that their opinion matters and all of that. I think it's different in the sense that the measurements, whether it's good or bad, show up much more quickly. <laughs> yeah. It's like I, the 30th of the month. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. But the profit and loss is much clearer to see in business than <laughs> much more quickly and more instructively in business than a lot of relationships. Right. Well, and there's a lot of things, obviously, that come to play in relationships, but I think in broad strokes, people want the same things, you know, in terms of that and in terms of acknowledgement and so on. And I think that where people feel the worst is when their contribution is not acknowledged. Yeah. And, you know, you're just treated like another cog. Yeah, there was a very interesting little experiment done. I think it was about 20 years ago, and it's in New York, and it was the Metropolitan Opera. They approached 100 people, so... When they had 100 people, the experiment was over. But they asked each person, we're offering a free ticket to this performance of the Metropolitan Opera. So you can actually see a full performance of the opera, or you can be present at the dress rehearsal before the opera goes live. And you can have a ticket to one, or you can have a ticket to the other. And I think they offered him two tickets so they could bring someone else. And it came out 50-50. About 50% chose the full live performance, and the other 50% 
chose the backstage, the preparation for it. And then afterwards, they did a follow-up of what people had done. And in the case of the full thing, the person brought their one person that they had for the other ticket. But what happened with the other people is that after they had been to the rehearsal, on average, they bought six tickets and brought five people to the opera itself because they had been part of the creation of the opera by being there at the dress rehearsal. Which makes perfect sense. You know, I mean, you got to sit in on rehearsal for the workshop. Yeah. And I think that that, I'm guessing we didn't talk about that, but I assume that that makes you feel more part of it. Well, so much so that I want to get the full dates and everything now, because if I go out 100 miles from Philadelphia, I've been talking about this for two years. I got an enormous number of my clients who want to come and see this play. Oh, fantastic. Thank you. That's great. That's really great. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, you know, when I'm interviewing people, like for my regular business, when I was hiring editors, and I said to them, I want you to do work that you want to show your friends. I want you to think it's cool. And also in process, after I give you the initial instructions and we talk about the project and so on, Don't come to me and say that, you know, I'm not sure if this is right, but I wanted to show it to you. Bring it to me when you're proud of it. And then I'll help as best I can to solve any problems, but I want you to be happy first. Yeah. What if the client doesn't like it, you know, because they're conservative or they're this or that? I said, that's not your problem. You have to please me. I'll deal with the client. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't want to clamp down on anything. I want to put out stuff that I feel really good about because if I'm sold, pretty good chance I'm going to be able to sell it. Mm -hmm. Which again, goes back to your wisdom about the double sale. Yeah, yeah. But the thing I'm getting, and I think we're going to see 10 years from now, looking back, that there's been a profound shift. And I I would say it's society-wide. What's worth working for? Okay. I think we're seeing some of that now, right? And I've had discussions with a lot of people about, you know, there's 10 million unfilled jobs. In other words, uh, the economy right now could accommodate 10 million more people because they're missing. So I was talking to someone who had some attitudes, you know, people are just lazy, you know, people aren't motivated, the school system isn't working, you know, everything else. And I said, you know, I've got a different thing. I said, before the COVID, they were working so hard and they were working so long and they would get up in the morning and they would go to work and they'd come home and they were so tired they'd go to bed. And they had absolutely no time to actually reflect on whether they actually liked working where they were working, okay? But all of a sudden they had like three months and they're saying, I can't believe what a shitty job that was. I can't believe what a shitty boss that was. I can't believe I put up with the shitty work conditions. I can't believe I put up with the shitty commute. <laughs> I said, the worst thing in the world happened. They gave people time to think. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And, you know, I think that 
the long-term effects of that remains to be seen, but I think it's beneficial. Oh, I think it's tremendous. I think it's tremendous. Me too. I think the pendulum had just won so far that the employer was the buyer, you know, and now you're talking about supply chains and everything, and it's CEOs who are going to get fired. It's, you know, I mean, it's, (laughs) you know, know, the other thing is that I've been dealing with this, you know, through my other interests like the high technology world. And I said, you know, it's bad to have the idea that human beings are only valuable until we can replace them with machines. I said, that's a fundamentally bad idea. Mm-hmm. First of all, because it won't work. And number two, it's really stupid. And the other thing that shows that you're morally deficient. <laughs> it's also <totally> great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I said, if there was any intelligence in it, I might hear you out, but it's so morally <laughs> deficient that you can't. And I said, you know, for computers to be smarter than us, we have to make human beings a lot dumber, you know. Maybe there's an intent on doing that. But that's the other thing I think we're going to find, that there's going to be some swing back to where we just start looking that the number one resource is human. I think that you're right. And, you know, that might be an interesting thing for us to, to go into next time, which is, Right now, people think that data is the Rosetta Stone. Mm-hmm. But when does intuition come in? What kind of data? And how do you even frame it? Because data isn't agnostic. Somebody put together the criteria for the questions, for the way the data is coded, all of these things. And if data was so flawless, we wouldn't have so many failures, but there are far more failures than successes. Yep. And they're all looking at data. My sense is that big data, you know, it's got a capital B, capital D, because that means it's really important. I said that at best, big data, and we don't know why in some circumstances, can predict what happened yesterday. That's right. That's exactly right. It's always a rear view mirror kind of a yeah. thing. And yeah, I was talking the past. <laughs> uh, I was talking with a group of technology people at Genius Network and I said, you know, we're really in showdown times. I said, this is like high noon. This is like, you know, the okay corral. And I said, there's one of two ideas that's gonna win the current showdown, and that is that the human brain processes information. Okay, that's what the human brain does. It processes information. And computers are an invention that processes information. And that we know just because of the progression of technology that at a certain point, computers can process information. In many cases, they can already process information. And therefore, the time in the universe for humans as information processes is reaching an end and the next evolution will be computers as the universal. And I said, I've heard people give speeches on this. There's books written on this and some people are looking forward to it. It's the coming of the Messiah when the machines, you know, replace the fraudulent and deficient human beings. I said, or that human brain doesn't process information. As a matter of fact, It's not even about information. It's actually that the human brain makes meaning. 
and it'll use any kind of input to make meaning. It doesn't really care what the input is. It doesn't need a lot of input to create a lot of meaning. And it's very pleasurable doing that. One of the meanings that the human brain created was a thing called computers, which is an interesting experiment, but you know they may not last long and we may not think much of them, but that's one of the meanings. And we especially like it when two human beings get together and make meaning together and a whole bunch of human beings get together and that's what we are. So that's one or the other is right and we're getting close to the showdown. <laughs> no, I think it's really fascinating. Because, you know, I often think about, I don't know how many words there are in the English language, but what I do know is that there are millions and millions of books that tell different stories and movies and plays and so on. I don't know offhand how many keys are on a piano keyboard, but look at the range that humans have been able to decode, if you will, and compose and all of that. And I think that where I think some of this is going to lead is actually a higher valuation of creative thought mm -hmm. and that creativity and bringing creative thought to solution for business problems, for different issues that we're faced with, social issues, whatever. Is, or just for sheer outright pleasure. Exactly. Well, that's right. Yeah. You know, yeah. I think that that's really the case. So I think it'd be really fun to explore some of that. Yeah, I'd love that one because I think this is a big topic right now and it's getting really to be a bigger topic. And uh, I just hear some very, very strange thinking, you know, talking about maybe we should really, really have mandatory euthanasia at 70 because, you know, it's a big expense. Talking about morally bankrupt. You know, we're right back to where we were a century ago. You know, this was talked about. You know, I, anyway, it's fascinating to me, but I just see signs of it showing up, you know, that we thought was done and gone with, you know, at the end of the Second World War, but it's coming back again. It is. Well, I think we have lived up to the name of our podcast, which is anything and everything from Clint Eastwood to uh, computers to Norman Lear to playwriting. Tom Brady. To Tom Brady. <laughs> yes. to Tom Brady. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. Thanks for joining us today on our show, Anything and Everything. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend. For more about me and my work, visit acreativecareer.com and madoffproductions.com. To learn more about Dan and Strategic Coach, visit strategiccoach.com.